I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. They come from Maine to California, broken hearts and parts unknown. This night we'll share a lover On that dog radio I got so many beats on Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. And the whole seizure, progress and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within.
Well into her 80s, Claire Hollingworth would sleep on the floor every week or so just to prevent her body from getting too soft. Her passport was to hand with visas up to date just in case the foreign desk rang. She liked to have two packed suitcases, one for hot climates, one for cold, though her wardrobe was notoriously sparse. In later life, she was seldom seen in anything but a safari suit and cloth shoes. And all you really needed, she said, were the tea and tea, typewriter and toothbrush. Hardiness and bravery were her hallmarks. Neither shot nor shell ruffled her. Excitement trumped fear, she said. She admitted to disliking only rickety lifts and fleas in her hair. But she didn't mind bedbugs, going without food for five or six days, or not washing for even longer, despite entreaties from her colleagues.
Time is such a slippery thing. It ticks away neutrally, yet it also flies and collapses, and is more often lost than found. Days can feel eternal, but a month can gallop past. So is time ever perceived objectively? Is this experience innate or is it learned? And how long is now anyway? Such questions have puzzled philosophers and scientists for over 2,000 years. They also began to haunt Alan Burdick of The New Yorker. Keen for answers, he set out on a journey through the world of time, a lengthy trip that spans everything from Zeno's paradoxes to the latest neuroscience. Alas, he arrives at a somewhat dispiriting conclusion. If scientists agree on anything, it's that nobody knows enough about time. Humans are apparently poor judges of the duration of time. Minutes seem to drag when one is bored, tired or sad, yet they flit by for those who are busy, happy or socialising, particularly if alcohol or cocaine is involved.
listening to my big bag of onions. Mr. M approached him. Doctor, he said, I have a daughter. He paused. Then he continued, and I also have a young man for my daughter. Again, a pause. He is a student of law. He passed the examinations with distinction. He paused again, this time, somewhat longer. Doctor, he asked, is he a steady man? Now, Mr. M, I explained, after what you have said, it can certainly be taken for granted that he is industrious and able. But, Doctor, he said, does he also have a good head? He has not succeeded with industry alone. He must also have something in his head. M paused. Doctor, should he now become a judge or a lawyer? About that, I can give you no information, I answered. But then M regarded me with a glance of almost melancholy renunciation, half complaining, half understanding, and spoke in an indescribable tone, composed in equal parts of sorrow and humility. Doctor, you do not want to say. Yeah.
Well, we have learned that frequently the hero in a myth has a miraculous birth. I would suggest to you that we understand that every birth of every human child in this world is a miracle. That nature itself is a miracle. We understand it now differently than did the time of, than the writer at the time of Genesis, traditionally Moses. We understand nature differently now. We look at it differently now. But we still cannot explain the miracle. The miracle of why every spring the dead trees bring back their blossoms and their leaves. Why in fall those same leaves turn beautiful colors and fall off. Why the stars will be in the same place this time next year. of women's subordinate status under the law are various. Judeo-Christian theology, 
English common law, and in America the specific conditions of early colonial life and the plantation life under slavery. The difference in their treatment is directly related to the difference in their bodies. As Adam and Eve's response after the fall reminds us, sexual difference is the first sign that the pure relationship with God has been corrupted. The biblical story thus seems to sanction a natural inferiority in women, and one that, as I pointed out in the lecture on the Hebrew Bible, is specifically located in their sexuality. Women's inferiority in secular status must, however, be reconciled with the equality of men and women before God. That reconciliation is managed because women's spiritual equality is tied first to a condition that they were supposed to abjure voluntarily, that is, single womanhood, and second to the specific conditions attached to the woman's sexuality in marriage. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions. Where are we now? Both home alone In the same house
I need no great effort of memory to recall in every detail the rainy autumn evening when I stood with my father in one of the more frequented streets of Moscow and felt that I was gradually being overcome by a strange illness. I had no pain at all, but my legs were giving way under me. The words stuck in my throat. My head slipped weakly on one side. It seemed as though in a moment I must fall down and lose consciousness. If I'd been taken into a hospital at that minute, the doctors would have had to write over my bed. Hunger. If I'd been taken into a hospital at that minute, the doctors would have had to write over my bed starvation, a disease which is not in the manuals of medicine. Beside me, on the pavement, stood my father in a shabby summer overcoat and a serge cap, from which a bit of white wadding was sticking out. On his feet he had big, heavy galoshes. Afraid, vain man, that people would see that his feet were bare under his galoshes, he had drawn the tops of some old boots up round the calves of his legs. This poor, foolish, queer creature, whom I loved the more warmly, the more ragged and dirty his smart summer overcoat became, had come to Moscow five months before to look for a job as a copying clerk.
The staff of a service area sympathised that 1970s report are often working under great pressure in remote and isolated places. They receive more kicks than thanks, and this, in a curious way, unites them in a common struggle against adversity. That sense of embattled affinity lives on. There are the Samaritans who fed and watered the tramp who slept on the deck. There is the clan of Portuguese. There is a post lady who pops in for a gossip with the kitchen team on the way to her round. There are the coach drivers on the overnight London to Scotland routes who are replaced here for the second half of the journey and drop in for a cuppa and a chat. Perhaps because most people are in such a rush to leave, jiggling their car keys as a signal of intent, it doesn't take long to find a niche in this community, which comes with only the politest hint that spending a full day here might be a little peculiar. listening to my big bag of onions.
for trespassing on the railway was only $25, but the 16-year-old knew nobody with that kind of money, so he accepted the 30-day jail sentence instead. He shouldn't have been sent to an adult prison at all, but he lied about his age. Anything was better than the dreaded child protection officials who wrenched children like him from their families. The inmates at Spy Hill Jail were a frightening bunch made of cement and iron, like the building itself, he recalled. But the food was the best he had ever eaten. Meat and potatoes, pork chops, broiled chicken, sometimes steak, sausages for breakfast. Better than at home, where the food money all too often went on his father's political campaigns. And so much better than the monotonous, mushy macaroni at his state boarding school. Arthur Manuel fumed. Canada treated even its prisoners better than its original inhabitants. He secretly planned a food strike, but his schoolmates, many of them institutionalized since the age of five or six, were too scared of confronting the white man. I had a chocolate bar, the finest you could find. It swallowed up my mind, and I was free to find. Keepers beckoned from their doors Syrup glass, marshmallow floors But I slipped through the alleys Wanting something more Young girl, I have something That you'll want to Says I have to wear a jacket 
cocoa melted from my eyes, trickled to the floor. They said they wanted more, and I was glad they'd found you. But cats were licking at the drains, their tongues would hurt my throat. But I was numb, so seasick. Could identify it first. Well, as you know, the fur turned out to be that of a Neanderthal, of three Neanderthals to be precise. The discovery led to a dramatic revision of ideas about the evolution and history of the hominids. It demonstrated something that the paleoanthropologists should have realized all along: Neanderthals were furry. They couldn't have survived for so long in Ice Age Europe without a heavy coat of fur. A deer hide slung around the shoulders simply isn't adequate protection against that kind of weather, and they hadn't invented the needle, so they couldn't sew. It was hard at first for people to accept the idea that our ancestors saw Neanderthals not only as a source of food—that seemed excusable, since the Neanderthals had the same attitude toward us—but also as a source of clothing.
Seeing one's own child for the first time is an event so sui generis that nothing can adequately prepare one for it. Its nuances depend on how one feels about one's spouse, one's financial situation, one's life in general, to say nothing of the baby's physical appearance and behavior. And all of these elements are striving to achieve meaningful combination with the main event, the birth of the baby. You can guess what that combination will look like by knowing as much as possible about the parent, but the prediction will be imprecise because too many of the variable factors that affect the parent's consciousness are external. If psychology were to take the stream of consciousness for its territory, it might begin to provide the kind of knowledge that we will need to make enlightened choices about the sort of future we want. With every increase in knowledge, our responsibilities increase. Essex County Cricket Club fan Lord David Price has been involved at cricket's highest altitudes since his mobile phone was once used to access ESPN Crick Info from the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro in an effort to place him there, a claim later accepted by the Nairobi court, leading to his acquittal. Having been sent down from Cambridge University after the first ever recorded instance of spot-fixing, an idea he himself had come up with, and taking a leaf from the book of Lord Lucan, his inspiration. Lord David then moved away from Britain and settled in the Cayman Islands, where he founded an international test cricket side that had an annual turnover of £10 million sterling, despite never taking to the field. He dreams of the day when the financial regulatory system of the United Kingdom allows him to bring this kind of unbeaten record to Essex County Cricket Club. Dear listeners, Lord David Price. Join me again soon for another big bag of onions.